It's a beautiful service. Wonderful songs. Wear your beautiful sweaters, Christmas sweaters. Short and sweet, but it's a delightful time. The candles represent Jesus as the light of the world. It's quite a meaningful symbol. At 2 o'clock, it's a little more family-oriented, not exclusively. Anybody could come. But we don't use uh, candles. We use uh, glow sticks because we want more kids to come to that one. It's a little earlier, and uh, it's work. We haven't set the church on fire yet. <laughs> so, But if you're coming to the 4 or 6 o'clock one, ladies, can you go easy on the hairspray? Please. The whole place is going to go up in flames with all that chemical. It's a good time. Hope you're able to come. So we are in uh, Jeremiah chapter 32 today. Jeremiah chapter 32. Great chapter. Look what it says. The word that came to Jeremiah... From the Lord, in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king. Zedekiah was the king of Israel. We have very specific and precise time indicators here. The tenth year of Zedekiah, which corresponds to the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, puts us in 587 B.C., in case you're, uh, you, you're wanting a historical frame of reference, 587 B.C., which means the circumstances surrounding this text are this. Zedekiah is king of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, also known as Chaldea. Uh, the Babylonians are, even as we're reading this, besieging the land. It is war in this text. And Jeremiah, God's key spokesman during this period, is in jail. It says so, verse 2. Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. So why was Jeremiah imprisoned? What crime did he commit? Anyone want to guess? He preached the word. Look it. He was in jail, verse 3, because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will... Look, Zedekiah was so familiar with the message God delivered through Jeremiah that Zedekiah could quote it word for word. So he could not say, I'm ignorant, O God. I didn't know what you said. Because he is giving a word-for-word recitation of the very thing that, hey, I haven't seen that lady in nine million, excuse me, folks. How are you? Merry Christmas to you. Wow. This is cool. God reveals truth. Our responsibility is to respond. We can't say, I didn't know. So he's giving, here's the message. Jeremiah, I don't like what you had to say. And this is what you had to say. 
in verse 4, more of the message. Uh, Zedekiah, king of Judah, won't escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans. He's going to be given into their hand. Uh, and he will take Zedekiah to Babylon. He's going to be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you won't succeed. So here's the deal. Zedekiah was simply not a big fan of Jeremiah's preaching. He just didn't like his preaching. So he put him in jail. So he did not like the message, so he imprisoned the messenger. That's why Jeremiah is in jail. But interesting. Can you think, if God is sovereign and if God is good, then he must be up to something good on Jeremiah's behalf, even in spite of his imprisonment. Can you think of any reasons why it might have been good for Jeremiah at this time? Billy? You are correct, brother. Folks, it's chaos in the land. The city is under siege. The Babylonians are already there burning and pillaging and killing with the sword. The whole deal. And Jeremiah would have been a great risk, not only at the hands of the Babylonians, but Zedekiah was not the only guy who didn't like Jeremiah. A lot of people didn't like his message. So the uh, Babylonians were out to get him and his own people were out to get him. And so one way in which God preserved him alive was to put him in jail. He was protected. Not only that, one of the things the Babylonians did was to lay siege to the city. And part of what you do is cut off the food supply. You, if you can't, if it's a walled city or if there are defenses that you cannot um, penetrate, you just starve the people out. So that was kind of what was going on. But while Jeremiah is imprisoned, <laughs> he's getting three meals a day. No, I think I think he was. Don't say, Billy, I'm telling you, I'm right. Don't ever come. Would someone put that guy in jail? <laughs> I think he was probably provided for. But you're, you think maybe he was being starved in jail? You think so? All right. <laughs> All right. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, okay, so here's what's going on. Remember, he's in jail now. And Jeremiah's responding. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle. So what's the relation between Hanamel and Jeremiah? Um, uh, our brother says his nephew. Is it his nephew or somebody else? See, it says Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your... Yeah, so if it's if this guy is... Is the um, his uncle's son? It means this is this is Jeremiah's cousin. I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I, I just got confused like crazy myself when I was studying this, and I was trying to figure out <laughs> what's the connection. This guy Hanamel is Jeremiah's cousin. He is sent to Jeremiah with a message, and here's the message: Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anatoth. Does anyone know what the significance of Anatoth is? Tom, I think you're right. I could, I could, I could, I read your lips. Could you say it again? You are correct, brother. This is Jeremiah's town. Prophets were there and stuff like that. Tom is absolutely correct. And so uh, his cousin comes and says, I need you to buy the real estate in your hometown because you have the right of redemption to buy it. So what does that mean? 
in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, God came up with a policy. <clears throat> if a family member owned property he could no longer afford, he would have to sell it. But to keep the property from being sold out of the family into the hands of a stranger, you could keep it in the family by another family member stepping up and saying, I have the wherewithal. I'll buy the property that you cannot any longer afford. It's called the right or obligation of redemption. So Jeremiah's cousin is reminding him of his responsibility. Now, God is setting this whole thing up. You need to know this. God is, Jeremiah's in jail. The city's being besieged. I mean, everything is breaking loose. And God intervenes right here. And he's up to something. It's a little peculiar, but you'll see why in just a few moments. And, and so God arranges for Jeremiah's cousin to come, visit him in jail with this message saying, uh, right, based on the right of redemption, you have to buy this particular land. It's very, very possible that they couldn't afford it anymore. Because who might be occupying it now? The Babylonians. In fact, they were. This is a parcel of land which was now already given over to the Babylonians. Remember, we're reading about this event in the midst of the Babylonian siege. They hadn't yet taken Jerusalem. They're at its gates, but they have taken surrounding areas, one of which was Anatoth. So, so God says through Jeremiah's cousin, you are obligated. I want you to buy a parcel of land that you cannot move over to because it's in enemy hands. It's a rather unusual request, but that's, that's the way it is. Undoubtedly, that seemed a little foolish to Jeremiah and everybody else to buy a piece of land that has already fallen into enemy hands. But okay, that's what God told him to do. So verse 8, Jeremiah is speaking still. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and he said, by my field, in Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin, you have the right of possession, redemption is yours, buy it for yourself. Jeremiah said, I knew this was from the Lord. So he, he says, I bought the field, which was at Anatoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels. So in those days, they didn't use coins because uh, coinage was not widespread. Um, transactions were done in weighted silver. This would have amounted to about seven ounces of silver. I don't know if it was a good price or not. I, I have no idea. But anyway, that's how they did it. And now what you're about to read is one of the longest records of an ancient business transaction known to humankind. I mean it. In the next few verses you're going to see a very precise and specific record of a business transaction. You'll get an idea how the ancients did it. It's, it's one of the most ancient records of an extended business practice available to us today. So check it out in verse 10. It says, <clears throat> I signed and sealed the deed. See, it's a real estate transaction. They had deeds of transfer in those days as we do today. Jeremiah said, I signed it and I sealed it. And I called in witnesses. We do that today. And I weighed out the silver on the scales. So here's what, what they did. A copy of the transaction would have been inscribed possibly on papyrus or parchment. Probably papyrus, animal skins. Then it would have been rolled up, a string or a cord would have been tied around it, Wax, or more likely dried mud, would have been put upon the string. And in this case, Jeremiah would have put his seal upon it. 
maybe with a ring, maybe with an instrument, maybe it would have said J for Jeremiah, if that's the first letter of his name, or maybe it was kind of like a brand like we have in in Texas, I don't know, something he fashioned which was identified with him. He would put his seal on it, and and it would be sealed, and it would be a formal transaction. But this is a bit of a problem. If it is uh, tied up and sealed so that you can't examine it, how are you going to examine it? So later on, if there's a dispute about who is the owner of the land, what good is this sealed deed? None. Therefore, the ancients had two copies. One was sealed and one was left open for public review. And you can see it referred to in verse 11. Then I took the deeds, plural, of purchase. Both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. So that's how they did it. And I gave the deed of purchase to a guy named Baruch. Uh, Baruch in Hebrew means thanksgiving or blessing. So when we pray to God and bless him, that's a Baruch. I don't know if you knew this. When you say thank you, God, or praise you, God, you're blessing God. That's a Baruch. Anyway, that's what this guy's name is. Baruch, we know from other passages of Scripture, was Jeremiah's friend, and he served as a scribe to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah gave him the deed, and uh, we see this guy's lineage. He's the son of this one, who's the son of that one, and all the rest. This is done publicly in the sight of Hanamel, his cousin, the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. Wow. That's a major act of faith. He's in jail. The enemy's at the door. He doesn't have access to this land. The Babylonians have it right now. He said, hey, let's put this in a place where we can get to it years from now. That's interesting. So he put it in an earthenware vessel. Do you know of any other documents that were famous ones, Charles? Dead Sea Scrolls. Scrolls. So this is fairly common practice. And uh, in this climate, wouldn't work so much in ours. You could put documents like this in earthenware pottery, and it would be preserved over centuries. No humidity. So if you go to the Dead Sea area of uh, Israel, um, you can see things can last for like this can last for a long time. So that's what happened. It's a peculiar kind of a thing. Almighty God, who's wise, told Jeremiah to do what appears, I'm sure, to be humanly unwise. Buy a piece of real estate you can't even go to visit. It's not even yours really anymore. And now we get the reason why God said all this. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards, will again be bought in this land. You know what God is doing? He's providing the people during this time, even while under siege, and before they're about to be carried off into exile, he's providing them with a sign of hope. There was this public real estate transaction. The deed is signed, sealed, and delivered to an earthenware vessel, and he wants this implanted in the minds of the people so that even in the midst of the siege and their 70-year exile, 
they can, at their most hopeless time of despair, they can think back about how God gave a guarantee, a pledge, a seal, a promise of their return to the land. That's why God did it. He's pretty good. Yes, Don. Don, that is wonderful. Don said, just like us, we have a pledge of the Holy Spirit in us to remind us that we're going to our land of promise, heaven. I think that's how you said it. Well said. You are absolutely right. So verse 16, it says, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Now, why did he do that? Folks, God just asked him to do something that (laughs) Jeremiah cannot make sense of. So he does the right thing. He goes to God in prayer so as to find some relief for his confusion. And so here's his prayer. Ah, Lord God. Notice how he starts. Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. That is a reference to the omnipotence of God. Omni-powerful. Powerful to the max. Jeremiah, before he gets anywhere else, is praising God for his unlimited power. He says, nothing is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness. God, you're not only raw power, it's also tempered by your loving kindness for all people. But he repays the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children. Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 19, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. That's a reference to the omniscience of God. So on the one hand, he's all powerful. On the other hand, he's all knowing. Notice Jeremiah is just rehearsing the attributes or characteristics of God. He hasn't even gotten to the matter at hand yet. And then he says in verse 20, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Whoa! Now Jeremiah is recounting the history of God's dealings with his own people. He's looking all the way back to the time when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and through signs and wonders, God led them out and delivered them. He's focusing on uh, the attributes of God and on the great and mighty works of God on his behalf, which have taken place previously. Verse 21, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand. Verse 22, you gave them this land. Uh, Verse 23, they came in, they took possession, but they didn't obey. In fact, they did nothing of all that you commanded. Verse 24, behold, the siege ramps. So here you see, we see the battle strategy of the Babylonians. Siege ramps have reached the city to take it. The city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, famine, pestilence. So you see what's going on. There's sword. They're starving the people and diseases breaking out. Jeremiah says, this is because of what you have spoken. Then it goes on, verse 25. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. So finally, in verse 25, he gets to the thing that's really disturbing me, uh, disturbing him. (laughs) 
God, what's up? You told me to buy this stuff with money. To do it in front of witnesses, a little humiliating. They laughed at me because I bought this piece of land. It's kind of like someone selling you the Brooklyn Bridge or something like that. God, what are you doing here? It's given it to the hand of the Chaldeans. I don't even have it anymore. Now, Jeremiah knows of the greatness and goodness of God. He shows no respect to God. In fact, he praises him for these attributes. He just does not know why the all-wise God wants him to do this. He's confused, and he honestly expresses it in prayer. In spite of all that he knew about God, he still remained puzzled about what God expected of him. He couldn't explain it. In essence, he is saying, God, how does this make sense? And now in the rest of the chapter, you get God's response to Jeremiah. Verse 26, word of the Lord came to him saying, behold, I am the Lord, God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? That's interesting. That's the way Jeremiah opened also. It's as if God is saying, you got it right, Jeremiah. (laughs) No, nothing is too difficult for me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take it. Verse 29, the Chaldeans who are fighting against the city, they're going to enter it. They're going to burn it. Verse 30, the sons of Israel and Judah, they've been doing evil. They have provoked me to anger. Verse 31, in the, indeed, the whole city has been a provocation to me. Verse 32, because of all the evil the sons of Israel have done to provoke everybody, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Je- the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everybody. They've turned their back to me, not their face. It's a metaphor. When you turn your face to someone, you're acknowledging at least the presence of the person. <laughs> and you're desiring some kind of communion. When you turn your back on that person, you don't care that they exist. God says, that's how you treated me. Verse 34, they put their detestable things in the house called by my, oh my goodness, in the tabernacle and or temple, they put crazy things that defiled it. In fact, they built high places, Baal, to this false god in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. That's a valley that runs south of Jerusalem. Verse 36, therefore God says, concerning this city of which you say, It's given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, in my indignation. I'm going to bring them back, and they'll dwell in safety. Verse 38, they'll be my people. I'll be their God. Verse 39, I'll give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me for their own good. Verse 40, I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. So that's a reference to the new covenant which we read about last week in chapter 31. Verse 41, I'll rejoice over them to do them good. Verse 42, just as I brought all this great disaster on them, I'm going to bring on them all the good that I promised to them. Verse 43, fields are going to be bought in this land of which you say it's a desolation. Verse 44, men will buy fields of money for money, sign and seal deeds, call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, and so on. I will restore their fortunes. So, 
couple points of application. Do you notice how Jeremiah was permitted to question God? Nowhere in God's response does God say, how dare you talk to me that way? No, nothing like that. Do you know you can question God? I mean, when you're confused about things, who else are you going to go to? There are just certain things that have to be resolved between you and your maker. Do you know it's no sign of disrespect to say, God, I love you, trust you, believe in you, but I don't get you. I don't understand why this is happening or why that is happening, and I don't understand why you have this requirement of me at this particular time. Do you know you could do that? We should know how to pray. We could approach the throne of grace boldly and confidently. The Father could take the heat. He knows we don't get it. Who else are we going to go to? Who has answers? Go to God, just as Jeremiah did. But do you notice that before Jeremiah questioned God, do you notice that he obeyed God? He just did what God told him to do, and then he said, I done did what you asked me to do, but I don't know why I did what you asked me to do. I don't get it. It's confusing to me. I did it. That's the order of things. Just do what the Father says because he knows best. Don't wait to be someone who has to fully comprehend God before you submit to God fully. You will never fully comprehend God if you did. He has ceased to be your God. He is now your equal. Don't be like someone who says, I will obey when I fully understand. No young child fully understands the requirements of his or her mom or dad. We are little children. He is our Heavenly Father. Don't wait for full understanding. Just say, oh God, I don't get this, but I trust you. I'll yield. I'll submit. I'll do it. But please tell me why I'm doing it. (laughs) Notice also, in Jeremiah's prayer, he began not with his petition. He began with his praise. This is the same model of prayer given to us in the well-known Lord's Prayer which is actually better termed the disciples' prayer. They said, how should we pray? Lord, he said to his disciples, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. See, they start with praise. They don't ask for a thing. Why? Sometimes when in praise you are reminding yourself of who God is, that is the answer to your need. (laughs) Sometimes you find yourself not needing anything else. Sometimes you get overwhelmed and burdened by the bigness of your burdens and problems till you stack them up alongside the real bigness of God. And then you say, God, that's all I need. I've just reminded myself who's on duty. Praise pleases God. Praise is therapy for you and me. Notice how Jeremiah remind him, reminded himself that God is still on duty. He's the most high God. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's not only big and mighty. He's good. He's loving. It's only after all that that he get around to the business of saying, and by the way, God, what's up? I don't get it. So if you don't do it that way, then your prayer life is going to be like what a lot of little kids are doing this time of year when they visit Santa in the mall. They have their little list of things they want to do, and they're going to crawl up on the lap of this um, hired Santa. And uh, he's going to say, you've been good? Yeah, yeah, I've been good. What would you like from Santa? And they're going to give, the little kid's going to give Santa the list. 
And that's it between them and Santa until next year. And the whole nature of the relationship with Santa is that I want stuff from you. I don't want you. I'm not going home with you, Santa. I just want you to deliver the goods. <laughs> then I'll come visit next year. So you don't make your prayer life that way. It doesn't mean you can't ask Almighty God for stuff, but don't reduce him to your divine Santa. He doesn't want to only give you stuff. He wants to give you him. Conversation is relationship. It's ongoing relationship. So so praise always should precede petition. I didn't say leave out petition. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. Ask. Why not? You don't offend the Father. I mean, the Father, all that can have to use the Father says, no. Keep asking, but no. It's okay. You could ask for stuff, but don't, don't, don't reduce your prayer life with, to, 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 don't minimize it and make it a list of, I want this, I want that. Talk to God. Do you notice what Jeremiah, it was conversation. Oh, God, you are great. You know what he did? He reviewed God's history with him. You should do that. I should do that. Sometimes you get in a situation, you don't know how you're going to get out of it. Look back and say, oh, God, this has happened before. I didn't know how I was going to get through the day. And I remember how you delivered me through signs and wonders, just like you did ancient Israel. And God, I don't know what's happening today. I don't know why you're allowing all this to happen to me. But inside of me, I have confidence that just as you have been towards me, you will continue to be. You see how Jeremiah did did all that? Something to learn. Another thing. Don't let the present diminish your confidence in God's abilities to fulfill his promises to you with regard to the future. The present day is challenging. Economically, quite challenging. Politically, challenging. We're at war here and there. Just a bunch of stuff going on that's distressing to a lot of us. You don't have to minimize that and act like it doesn't bother you. Sure, things bother everyone today. But don't let the realities, harsh realities though they may be of the present, uh, diminish your faith in the fulfillment of God's promises for your future. You think this is a bad day? You think, oh, man, I've never seen it like this ever. Man, it was worse than Jeremiah's day. At present, no enemies at our door. At present, in the, to the extent that they're laying siege to Houston. I mean, I drove all the way in from Pearland today, and uh, nobody shot at me or anything. It's kind of a cool deal. I mean, yeah, nobody's starving us out, laying siege or anything like that. I mean, don't misunderstand. I didn't say it's always going to be. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the enemy will get closer. I don't. All I'm trying to tell you is don't be getting into, getting into this thing that's never, you, you, you don't like politicians. I ain't so thrilled about them either. But, hey, man, my president hasn't put me in jail. But Jeremiah's did. My president allows me to come worship the Lord Jesus. It's kind of a cool deal. I mean, the laws of my country still allow me to practice freedom of my faith. You know, well, We can pray outside. We built a big old cross out there, man. But Jeremiah's political leader put him in jail. Now, I'm not saying it won't get to be there. I, I don't know anything. All I know is this is not the worst it's ever been. 
It was really, really bad in Jeremiah's day. But God made promises of a return to the land during which time normal activities will take place just like now. Land will be bought and sold. There will be transactions and so on. And he said even during the siege and beyond, even during the exile, people of Israel, remember, I have a future and uh, for you. Be hopeful. And I think God is saying, people of the church of Jesus Christ, be hopeful. I have a future for you. In fact, God spelled it out in manifold books, not the least of which is the book of Revelation. It's really, really, really glorious. Do not let today distinguish your confidence in tomorrow. There is a tomorrow for the people of God. We're not doing this is just this is not just about Israel. This is about how God responds to his covenant people. Oh yeah, they're going off because of their own sin out of the land God promised for them just like you and I miss out on the blessings of what God has for us when we sin. But if you belong to him as a son or daughter, no matter what, he's always going to restore you. He's always going to bring you to the land of promise. He promised you it. And the pledge, as Don said, the pledge is not a deed of land, physical land, an earthenware vessel. The pledge is his very spirit in you of a land that is far better, a land to come. So be careful, be careful. Remember the promises of God for your future. And then... One final thing. Can you imagine what was going on when Jeremiah, in the presence of his cousin, witnesses, government officials, jailers, all other people, signed this deed of purchase of land which the people knew they don't even possess anymore? Can you imagine how they, even the, the notary public, I can see the notary public over there, trying to be cool and dignified, but, but still going. <laughs> so here's the deal. It really looked crazy what he was doing. But there's nothing crazy about doing what God tells you to do. It just looks that way to non-God people. You know what looks crazy? When you get up on Sunday morning and come to church, you will be the object of scorn. It's a crazy thing. You stayed up late last night. You got a million things to do. You could be sleeping in. It's cold out. You got to hang out with people, some of whom you don't like. Why do you do it? What is wrong with you peeps? You're one of the few in your neighborhood who gets up and makes the trek. To your church, you know that. There's no traffic on the road Sunday morning. It's just you and three other crazy people. But there's nothing crazy, nothing crazy about the will of God and doing it by faith. Jeremiah didn't proceed by understanding. He proceeded by faith. You know what's crazy? You take some of your income, and man, it is not coming easy to too many people anymore. You take some of it and give it away. And someone asks, what is... And you say, I love the Lord Jesus. He provides for me and this is just a token 
of my love for him. Can I tell you something? Are you crazy? That's what it looks like. Because what doesn't look crazy is if you want to have, then you hoard. But God said, no, if you want to have, you spread it around what you have. (laughs) You know what that's called? Crazy. That's like buying a piece of land I can never have access to. I want to tell you something. Just as with Jeremiah, so with us. If you do things the Father's way, some of them think you're crazy. But there's nothing crazy about saying, you know, all my life I've done stuff my way. That was crazy. And look what it got me. I'm still dealing with the consequences thereof. It's not crazy to do to live life the way the giver of life designed it. You tell me what's crazy about that. So you just need to know. The majority view may think you're nutso. Don't worry. You think the majority is doing so hot? Look at the majority. So, folks, it's not going to be easy to submit to the Father, but there's nothing crazy about doing it. Father knows best. Yeah. So the Lord Jesus came. We take this time of year to really focus on it, but we focus on his coming all through the year. And this December is as good as as any. People say, do you think the Lord Jesus really was born on December 20th? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Take a time (laughs) to call the world to attention about the Christ who has come. It doesn't matter the date. I don't worry about that kind of a stuff. So during this time, we remember, God, you're unseen, unknown, and I could not get to you, so you got to me. You came. And God, if you did all that for me, so as to tell me how to live, I'm nuts to live independent of you. That's crazy. You didn't give me a deed in an earthenware vessel. You gave me yourself in a manger. I don't need another sign of God's watch care, kind intentions, and interest in guiding me through life. If you gave me that sign, Away in a manger. No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down. His sweet If you did all that, then I'm going to get in my head. What's in your mind? There's nothing crazy about living that way. Um, the Lord Jesus came because he loved the world. But just not the ways of the world. So too with us. So we hang out with people in the world. So us to love them. But it is not crazy to separate from the ways of the world in order to submit to the will of God. There's nothing crazy about it. (laughs) Lord Jesus, thank you for coming the first time. Thank you for coming again. We're simply in between us. We're doing pretty good. We're enveloped by your coming. First is a babe, lamb to suffer. Second is lion of Judah. And the best is surely yet to come. We don't want to let the present state of affairs extinguish the fire of hope which you have birthed in us. And you've given us the pledge, the seal, the reminder of future hope by implanting in us your very Holy Spirit. Fantastic. Magnificent. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful Christmas season 
which is only a symbol of the most marvelous redemptive event in human history. God enfleshed so as to die for human flesh so that human flesh can live on with a living, risen Savior forevermore. Thank you for future hope. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Merry Christmas to you.